Tuesday, September 29th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today, the one and only Morgan Housel. Happy Tuesday, my friend. Same to you. Happy National Coffee Day. Is that right? It is National Coffee Day, yes. Every day is National Coffee Morning for me, though. I was just going to say, if, if does coffee you... consumption go up today? Uh, it probably does because you've got some promotions where people like, I shouldn't say people, uh, businesses like Dunkin' Donuts and Krispy Kreme are, are, are have various promotions where they're giving away free, just straight coffee, just yeah. a medium. Yeah. You know, not not the drinks, not the cappuccino, all that sort of thing, not the espresso drinks, but sure, why not? Can you explain something to me real quickly? Yeah. We have free Starbucks coffee here in Molly Fool offices. I think it's Pete's. No, it's Starbucks. Oh, okay. Free. Yes. Many people, including yourself, yes. choose to go across the street, wait in line, and buy it. Can you explain this to me? <laughs> it's a great question. I think... I'll just speak for myself. You just hate money. <laughs> you know what? We're going to get on that topic in a second, <laughs> how we treat money, all of us. Um, Part of it for me is just the um, I like the routine. I yeah. like the leaving of the office. I like uh, I like just going out with with you with uh, the the people at Full Funds. Just you know, because many people I like the act of getting coffee. Many people in the morning will say, "Hey, do you want to go get some coffee with me?" Including you, yeah. Sometimes, and I say, "I will go with you, but I'm going to bring my own free coffee." <laughs> I, I will avail myself of the free office coffee in the afternoons. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, it's funny. Bill Barker, who drinks more coffee than I do, okay, and that's really saying something. I was reminded of something recently because, like you, he has access to free coffee here in the office, but he'll go to Starbucks. He'll he'll buy coffee, but his line in the sand is bottled water. It was a week or two ago. We walked over to the the Starbucks that is closest to us. And it was the afternoon, and I, he said, oh, what do you want? I'll get it. I said, actually, I'm thirsty. I, I just want some bottled water. And he said, oh, I'm not paying for that. <laughs> so, well. so, like, I'll buy coffee. I'll shell out money for coffee all day long, but I'm not paying for bottled water. Draw the line somewhere. Exactly. Um, so, again, happy National Coffee Day. By the way, it, it, should we be surprised that so far, year-to-date, the market down around 8% year-to-date, shares of Starbucks up more than 35%, shares of Dunkin' Brands up around 15%. They're selling coffee! It's a legally addictive product. They're selling it. We shouldn't be surprised by this, should we? No, I think they're fantastic companies. I don't think you should set your expectations that Starbucks stock will go up 35% every year. I, no, no. Uh, some people will though. Some people will set those expectations based off past performance. So, but no, there's no there's no doubt that they are phenomenal companies that have captured uh, both people's imaginations and their addictive traits. <laughs> their uh, addictive vulnerabilities. Yeah, that. exactly. Um, we're going to talk energy prices in a minute, but let's start with something. An article that you wrote recently, and it was uh, entitled "Seriously." You should save money in your twenties, and this was in response to I, I have to. I'll just speak for myself. Something I consider to be a breathtakingly insipid article. Yeah, from uh, a writer I've never heard of on a site I've never heard of called Elite Daily, and uh, the writer by the name of Lauren Martin wrote, "If you if you have savings in your twenties, you're doing something wrong." Yeah. Which you wrote a very nice rebuttal to, but I, let's dig into this a little bit because her 
her thesis, which is probably an overstatement to say that she had one, but her thesis seems to be, hey, look, later in life, you're going to have responsibilities. You, you might get married. You might have kids. You might have a mortgage. And when you're in your 20s, Time to live. Time, Time to, to go live. out and have fun. And go out and have fun. And, you know, I can see that. Well, I think my my response to it was two things. One, it was, yeah, sure, your, your 20s are a time to go out and see the world and have fun with your friends and learn new things. But if the only way that you can do that is by living paycheck to, to paycheck and spending every dime that you have to your name, then you're probably doing something wrong. And I said in the article, if you can only hang out with your friends by spending all the money that you have, that's the only time your friends will hang out with you. Your friends probably don't like you very much. Right. So she put it in time these for terms, some new friends. She put it in these terms of the only way that you can enjoy life and explore new things is to spend all of your money. And that's just something I, I fundamentally disagree with. The other part of, of it was that it was set up as a binary choice of you can either live paycheck to paycheck or bury yourself in the ravages of trying to save money. And it's not that black or white. You can find a balance in between, between living your life and having fun and enjoying new things, but also being responsible and saving some money as well. And then, well, I, and then I dug into some of the specific points that she made that I found particularly silly. Well, and the thing, and, and we talk about this from time to time, but, um, you know, Maybe we should talk about it a little more often, and that is the the incredible power of compounding interest. Oh, right. That the advantage that people in their twenties have over people like me, who are, you know, closing up on the big five zero, is decades more time to let that interest compound. And I'll just quote from the end of her article where. She writes, when you're 40, you're not going to look back on your 20s and be grateful for the few thousand you saved. You're going to be full of regret. And again, well, here, missing the, the power of compounding interest, if you, newsflash, if you're in your 20s and you save a couple thousand dollars and just let that compound over a couple of time, by the time you're in your 40s, it's going to be a whole hell of a lot more than a few thousand dollars. And not only that, but it'll probably be, in terms of multiples, way more than the wage gains you have over your career. I, I wrote about this a few years ago, that for most people, from the times they're in their early to mid-20s till their earnings peak in their 40s or 50s, your, your wages might increase three or four-fold, which is great, three or four-fold. But if you save money and invest it in your early in your early 20s, by the time you are later in your life approaching retirement, that money could easily, after inflation, be tenfold. So the multiple gains that you get from investing in a long-term asset, like 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 the stock market, is likely going to be more powerful than the wage gains you will get over your career. So I understand why people say, I don't want to save money, I need to work on my career. That makes sense. But I think it's if you really dig into the numbers of what has happened historically and what is likely going forward, it's not, it's not really the case. It's, I, I feel like most people throughout their careers, if they can double or triple their wages from the time they get out of college to the peer career, peak of their career, that's great. You know, you start out of college at 40000 and at your peak you make one twenty. That's great. That's a good career. I, on the other hand, I think it is, it is quite easy without even trying that hard if you're investing in your 20s to increase your money tenfold by the time you're in your 60s. Thank you for taking her to task. I, I got to say, I was horrified when I initially read her article. I was very quickly thereafter heartened by your response, by other people writing online, by the reaction on Twitter 
because the what's unfortunately and this I I don't want to say this is this is something that happens solely to millennials. I think this happens to any group, whether it's a group by country, by age, whatever. But what's dangerous about this type of article is this is someone. This is a peer. It's like, hey, I'm in my 20s. You're in your 20s. Don't listen to those old folks who say you should be saving money. That kind of thing. Yeah. And to me, that in in some ways, that's like the most dangerous type of advice you can get because it's cloaked as, hey, we're all in this together. Right. I'm the same as you. And it's like, ah, that doesn't change the fact that you're giving 100% horrible advice. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on to uh, a much happier topic: energy prices. Well, no, not a happier topic. <laughs> what What is going on here? I mean, this is uh, we're we're basically at the the one year mark of oil starting to fall. But you and I were talking earlier this morning. It's I mean, this is when you look not just at oil and oil prices, but you look at different economies around the world. You see this cascading negative effect that lower energy prices are having. And not just energy, but all commodities. If you, you, know, you look at steel or metals and whatnot, it's coal. All commodities are just plunging in value right now. And I think the long-term history of commodities are these things work in 15 or 20-year cycles. You have a 20-year up cycle where prices just march relentlessly higher, and you have a 20-year down cycle where they just fall and fall and fall. And what causes that is you when you have an up cycle and prices rise, and then with rising prices, it incentivizes companies to go out and learn new technology, new ways of drilling, new ways of mining. And then they figure out this technology, and all of a sudden you have a supply boom. And because you have a supply boom, then prices start falling, and they fall for 20 years until, until prices bottom out. And it just repeats itself. It's just a classic supply and demand problem. And I think the evidence is growing pretty clear that 2008, when oil prices hit $145 a barrel, that was the peak of the last commodity cycle. And that also provided the incentive that businesses needed to go out and learn how to drill oil in new, innovative ways. And they did that incredibly well. And you've just seen a supply boom over the past couple years. And then you combine that with a slowing global economy, particularly in China, and it's just classic supply and demand. Prices are going to fall until they meet some sort of happy equilibrium. And I don't know if we're there yet, but I think the important thing is not... I mean, I, I hate to say something that sounds like a forecast, because of, of all asset prices, I think energy has the worst history of people forecasting what's going to come next. It's just incredibly difficult. But if people are still under the impression that this is a temporary pullback and oil prices are going to jump back to $120 a barrel, that, I think, is something that has a very low chance of coming true. It seems, it seems pretty clear that we're in some sort of new age that might last years or decades compared to what we, with what we were at in 2008. I've mentioned before, Ron Gross is someone who, among other things, looks at managing a balanced portfolio, balanced not just in terms of risk, but also in terms of industries, and believes that everyone should have a little bit of energy exposure in their portfolio. And when I hear you talk like that, I'm reminded of why I don't have any energy exposure in my portfolio, because it, it really does go to that, um, in my case anyway, um, a lack of confidence that I'm going to have any kind of edge as an investor when it comes to anything related to commodities or energy. That makes sense. I'd say my rebuttal is, 
you're only diversified. You only have a diversified portfolio if some of your stocks or some of your assets are performing worse than others. That's the only point which you know you're diversified. So I think if you, I got that if you if you if you own energy <laughs> stocks right now, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I, I, in general, I wouldn't even recommend going out and selling them because eventually, someday, whether it's years or or maybe decades down the road, the energy cycle will start spinning the other way. And I think you, I think it is, uh, it is, uh, it's it's high thinking to think that you could pick that bottom exactly when it comes, and that once oil prices bottom, you're going to jump back into energy stocks. I think it's a far better plan to just own a little bit of everything and and take the cards as they may. I want to go back to something that we had talked about on yesterday's episode, where we were discussing the different share classes that Google had and ended up talking about proxy voting, because that's the difference in two of the Google share classes is one you have a vote and the other you don't. Yep. And um, I, I, I fear, I, based on the uh, couple of email I got from listeners, that I may have um, misspoken in terms of how I approach that sort of thing. Because I, I, I don't want to leave anyone with the impression that uh, I feel like, well, the, the people in charge of the companies, they're going to do right by shareholders. And don't worry about proxy voting. Uh, no, that's 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 not what I was trying to get across. Yeah. I, uh, what I was trying trying to get across was, I look at my purchase of a stock as my own personal proxy vote. I look it's at your com- vote of confidence. It's yeah, it, because I don't want to. I don't want to invest. I don't want to be a part owner of any business where I feel like, boy, year in a year out, I, I better cast my proxy vote accordingly because I don't completely I don't trust tr- these people. I don't trust them. To run the business in a smart manner. It's like getting in a relationship with someone and you're saying, "Look, I'm going to marry you, but I need to change some things about your behavior, <laughs> and I'm going to vote. I'm going to try as hard as I can to influence those changes." A much better option is just marry someone you trust. Right. So, um, is proxy voting something? You know, is it something that you pay attention to? Is it something that you participate in, or are the companies that you own? Are you doing essentially the same thing I am, where it's just like, no, this is this is one more box that I'm looking to check before I click the buy button on a stock. I do participate in it. I, I don't spend that much time thinking about it because maybe maybe this is a wrong a wrong view, but I feel like the number of shares I own is not going to influence anything either way. Particularly the companies I own, you know, Berkshire Hathaway. Warren Buffett joked at a shareholder meeting a few years ago. They were holding a proxy vote, and Buffett said, "Feel free to vote, but the the winning bid is already in my pocket." So, right. when 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 you have a company or like Google or Facebook where you have a founder that effectively controls the company, you can vote because it's neat, but you're not gonna you're not gonna change anything. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking that approach. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, you know what, I'm not interested in that. I'm yeah. not interested in owning yeah. shares of a company where I don't have a vote. It's you know it 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 all goes to the sleep factor for me. No, I want to feel like I've got a say, and it, it, I trust them ninety nine percent. But on the one percent that you know, the person running this company loses his or her mind, I want to be able to step in there. But I, but for me, it's if I didn't trust the CEO, I just wouldn't own the shares. Yeah, yeah. I, I also think that on a professional level. I think the professional investor version of that is activist investors. Yeah. You've got money managers out there who uh, are, are going about their business, but then you've got the Bill Ackmans, the Carl Icons, who are much more interested in looking at and looking for the companies where they feel like, ooh, if we make some changes at the top, if we can 
you know, if yeah. we can change this person as we start to date them, yeah. then we can we can affect a, a positive outcome for the stock. And I, I think a lot of times for those activist investors, it doesn't turn out as as they would hope. But yeah, I'd, I'd much rather just own companies run by people who I trust. Thanks for being here, man. And marry and marry people you trust. Marry people you trust. Isn't that one of the great? I, you don't have to name names, but I'm guessing at some point in your life you you dated someone. And while you may not have thought it at the time, eventually you realized, oh, actually, I was kind of hoping these these things would change, and they didn't. On the next show, I will actually name names. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That does it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 